This is Owen Calfer in Dublin. This is Andrew Duncan in London. And welcome to episode four of the Double Booked podcast. Double Books is a podcast for people who like children's books, graphic novels, comics, libraries, librarians, bookshops, secondhand bookshops, and secondhand librarians. On this edition of Double Booked, we have Stig of the Dump by Clive King, as are me, myself, and I. We look at some aliens in weird science. We have a fantastic special guest in the form of Cressida Cowell. You, Owen, take a look at Flash Gordon as your It Was Rubbish, But I Loved It. And then, of course, we end with some Agony Owen letters. How are you, Owen? It's nice to see you again. I know it's 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 nice to see you. Uh, I feel like we nearly always see each other um, on Zoom, although we do have a couple of sneaky uh, meetings which we can't tell about. They're like top secrets. Or well, one of the meetings we should pay tribute to if uh, um, is is that we went to the celebration party, retirement party, celebration party of our great editor, um, Anne McNeil, who is retiring from Hoda Hachette. She was responsible for picking illegal and really, really championing illegal and buying illegal at the company. So we both owe her a debt of gratitude. And she's helped many other people, uh, such as Cressida Cowell with the Dragon series. All through the years, she had a fantastic career in children's publishing. And we were there to give her a send-off um, very recently. And let's hope she has another um, lovely chapter in the future. I'm sure whatever she takes on, she'll be a roaring success at. And it's interesting you should talk about Cresta there because every week I ask you about another shadowy part of your past uh, by way of introduction to people who don't know you, Andrew Duncan. But one of the books you wrote uh, among many, many uh, books that you have written um, and many millions that you have sold uh, is a book about Vikings. And because we're talking to Cresta later on, I wonder, can you tell us how did you get... Uh, interested in Vikings and how did you come to that uh, topic and did you enjoy it? I loved it. The 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 book you're referring to is called Viking Blood. Viking Blood. Um, um, and and it's a, a scholastic book. Um, and I got into Vikings and Viking myths when I read Thor. When I read Thor and Tales of Asgard, written by Stan Lee and drawn by Jack Kirby, which was um, the Marvel comic Thor, and there was a backup feature. Uh, that retold all of the Norse mythology with art by Jack Kirby, adapted by Stan and Jack. And that was completely brilliant. And I fell in love with the Norse myths when I was when I was a kid reading those when I was like seven, eight, um, and read different versions of Norse myths. And everybody tells us slightly differently. And it's nice to read different versions. And I wanted to do my own. So I did a book. I suggested Scholastic. We did a book called Viking Blood about a boy whose dad wants him to be a warrior but he's actually a bit more like you and me. He's a bit spindly and he's a bit yeah, he's a bit of a storyteller. And so he becomes the tribe storyteller and retells the Norse myth um, cycle instead of being a warrior because that's what he's good at, even though he's a chief son. Um, and it was great fun. It was great fun to do. I'm looking at the cover here. It's very striking. And of course, uh, we, we all read um, the Jack Kirby Thors and Lokis uh, when we were young. So I'm not in the, knowing your love of Jack Kirby, I'm not in the least surprised. Uh, that that's what attracted you to Vikings. And now um, I'm a bit sorry I asked you about that book because now I have to ask you about another book as part of our regular um, segment, Me, Myself and I, when we talk about uh, a book that you love. And I'm a bit miffed actually because I had planned to use this book myself for a future 
podcast, but you beat me to it. So uh, can you please, uh, in eight minutes or less, tell us a little bit about Stig of the Dump by Mr. Clive King? Hmm, I wonder what they've picked this time. It's me, my shelf, and I. Yes, uh, yeah, my choice is, is Stig of the Dump by, by Clive King. And I've loved this book for a long time. I read it as a kid. Some books you come to uh, as a kid, some books as a teenager, some children's books you discover as an adult. But Stig of the Dump, I remember reading as a kid, and I've read it several times since, and I've read it to my kids. It's a lovely story of a boy who goes to stay with his grandmother, um, and of course he's a bit lonely there, there's just him, an old lady in a house, and he goes out to explore, and she says, don't go anywhere near the really dangerous rubbish dump, and of course he does go near the rubbish dump. As Rook, soon as he gets rookie up, error, got, rookie error. And the side collapses, and he falls down a few bits, and, and living in the rubbish dump, he finds Stig, uh, now kind of like Stig. It's, it's never... The lovely thing about the book is it's never explained exactly uh, who or what Stig is. If he is, he's, he's kind of like, he's a Neolithic um, Stone Age man. It's, he might be a Neanderthal. He might be any other offshoot of, of humankind. It's not explained if he's come through a time slip or if he's just always been living there like the Loch Ness Monster. No, it's just the story is about um, Barney's friendship with Stig uh, he finds Stig to be a fantastic character. Stig captures and gets lots and lots of junk that's thrown in uh, to the dump, and he uses it in really, really ingenious ways. Um, and I'm just going to read now a tiny excerpt from um, Stig the Dump. This is a bit where uh, Barney has fallen down and he's met uh, Stig, and he is in his uh, is in his cave. He'd never seen anything like the collection of bits and pieces, odds and ends, bric-a-brac and the odd brock that this dig creature had laying about in his den. There were stones and bones and fossils and bottles and skins and tins, stacks of sticks and bits of string. There were motor car tyres and hats from old scarecrows, nuts and bolts and bobbles from brass bedsteads. There was a coal scuttle full of dead electric light bulbs and a basin with rusty screws and nails in it. There was a pile of bracken and newspapers that looked as if they had been used for a bed. The place looked as if it had never been given a tidy up. I wish I lived here, said Barney. Stig seemed to understand that Barney was approving of his home and his face lit up. He took on the air of a householder, showing a visitor around his property and began pointing out some of the things that he seemed particularly proud of. And Stig has used loads and loads of junk that's just been thrown down in the dump to make to make a house, um, to make a home for himself, using, memorably, I remember from reading it, as uh, glass jars to make a window. So he's got a window, which are loads of jam jars kind of stuck on each other so that light comes through and makes different patterns and shapes as it does, which is a brilliant idea. I mean, which is a brilliant idea to do today. And it's really a story of um, friendship between the lonely Barney, uh, who's a kid, and kind of Stig, who lives by himself, has always lived by himself. Um, in many ways, it's, it's way ahead of its time. It came out in 1963. Uh, it's been in print ever since. It's in print today in England, in England and Ireland and the US. Um, it's got loads of elements of recycling in it, loads about living with nature, because Stig lives in the dump using plants and using trees and using natural cures and stuff. 
from a kid's point of view, um, the narrative is all about Barney and it's about his friendship and it's about having a secret because he's discovered Stig and he knows where he is. And I think when he tells someone, no one believes him. So it's about having your own secret friend and it's also about the thrill of discovery because not only does grandma say, don't go near the dump, but there's nothing in the dump that's worthwhile. There's nothing in the dump. It's just rubbish. And Stig finds his best friend ever in the dump and the two of them kind of pal up and they have some adventures against Barney's school friends. Um, and it culminates in a kind of back in time uh, night when um, Barney gets to see the kind of environment that Stig lived in and his, and his tribe. And it's beautifully written and it's a beautiful story about friendship across the ages. Yeah. And, and even more than that, the, well, you just mentioned that it's beautifully written and it is, but the lists you read out there of the stuff in the dump is very lyrical. The way he puts those lists together, it's not accidental. It's almost poetic and it just flows along and it's beautiful. And the illustrations, of course, by Ed, Edward Ardizone and I, are, are wonderful. And a lot of the editions um, still use those uh, original just um line illustrations there's a cover one on uh, there's a color one on the cover i believe but it's all yeah. these little little things well they're not little they're major but you, you have someone like edward artisani doing your artwork you know it's going to be something special for me what uh i would credit stig and i think possibly huckleberry finn as being the books that rubber stamped me as a reader because until that point Everyone I had read, all the heroes were like square jaws, princes with a destiny and possibly a birthmark that showed they were of royal blood. So, yes, they would have to go through hard times, possibly in the company of a grumpy wizard. But eventually you knew they were going to be in the castle. And I always felt as a kind of a small, as you said, spindly fellow that if I was there, I wouldn't be I just would not be welcome hanging around with those people. But when you read Stig, you could go. Barney would probably be my friend. And actually, Absolutely. Barney Barney was me as a kid. Or oh, I would yeah. love to have Barney as a friend. He was yeah. he, he was how, how many bookish kids are. He wasn't athletic. He wasn't sportsy. Um he, he doesn't suddenly have loads of brilliant ideas. But he's also very, very real. Uh, yeah. and I just could absolutely picture myself as Barney, just like you. Because whenever there was a spindly kid, this this happened a lot. There'd be this weakling kid. And, but then he would find a magic sword and suddenly he'd be a warrior. And that, uh, it's the same in modern, like even Captain America, he was a spindly guy and well, he's useless, but oh, now he's a super soldier. Finally, he's a real hero. And the, even the Hulk, well, he's useless. He's just a clever person. Now he's the Hulk. He's amazing. So Barney, I felt if me and Andrew showed up at the dump, we'd actually, and knew the secret now, we'd be let in. So it was the doorway into reading for me, and it just kept me reading for a long time. So oh, I think I, that's brilliant. I, I think they should yeah. do a superhero um, thing where, where the guy is really spindly, and then he takes the serum, and afterwards he's still spindly, but he writes some best-selling graphic novels and then becomes a hero <laughs> that way. That's that's just, that's that's the story I, I would like to see. No one would believe that. It's far too unrealistic. Clive, Clive King. But let's beautiful... try the, uh, what is, we'll try the magic serum next time I'm over for, we'll see if we can find Wait. some of that magic serum. Clive King is a beautiful writer. And just, yeah. just as an example of his just drawing out character with just a tiny line, there's a line in um, just after the bit I read where he says, uh, Stig, not, Stig did not seem much bigger than him, but he looked very strong and his hands looked cleverer than his face. 
Yeah. Uh, I think that's just wow. lovely because what that's just saying to the reader is Stig is not academic and he doesn't know anything about Einstein's theory of relativity, but he can do stuff. His hands are clever and his mind is nimble and he's made yeah. a, a window out of jam jars. And this guy is really practical at surviving in a really planet friendly way. And in many ways, he's, you know, he's streets ahead of you, Barney. Yeah, and I think he'd probably win changing rooms if they still did that, if he could make that uh, window <laughs> out of jam jars. He'd be in the final at the very least. It, let's move on to our, our next section, um, which is another um, question I'm going to ask you, Andrew. I, I'm really putting you under pressure today. Sorry about that. But our third section is uh, mad science. Uh, and you're a big fan of mad science and science in general. And you like to troll, sorry, troll, not troll, troll the internet. <laughs> I like to troll scientists. <laughs> That's not such thing as gravity. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and look for for mad science. And actually, most both of our books have mad scientists in them. Uh, so I'm very interested in this too. But you're, you seem to be better at finding these oddities than me. So what is the, what is the mad science this week? Hello, you're true to the weird science department. Have you tried turning it on and off again? Well, the man's science this week, this week is um is, is aliens watching you. Do you feel alien eyes on you at all? I do. I mean, I'm very <laughs> open. I'm very open to uh, all sorts of theories. Like obviously, some are a bit more, a bit stranger. I mean, there's a lot of conspiracy theories, and some are fun. And some are not. And the fun one is that aliens are watching us. The not fun one is that the American administration are trying to turn us into Satanists by making us wear masks. So let's be open to the fun one, which is the aliens. Well, this this one is about the potential real aliens watching us. So you know that with telescopes, scientists can now spot exoplanets. Exoplanets are planets outside of our solar system where they're revolving around suns stars that are many light years away so you can now have telescopes that are so powerful they can pick out planets and say oh, okay this star has seven planets this one has three so some clever people far cleverer than us have thought okay we have got a certain angle on the universe that lets us see certain planets we can see where the planet travels in front of the, their star what planets what stars could maybe see the earth traveling in front of our sun and be watching us so this says this is from new scientists this summer it says ets may have beady eyes on us right now that's the headline aliens could be watching us even as we record this podcast a survey of stars within about 300 light years of earth have found that over 2,000 of them have been at some point recently in the right position to spot our planet in the same way that we usually find exoplanets and 75 of the closest could even detect the radio and TV waves that we constantly send out into the cosmos. The easiest way to spot a planet outside of our solar system is to catch it passing between us and its star because it blocks out some of the star's light. The team involved estimates that there could be more than 400 rocky worlds orbiting in the Goldilocks, Goldilocks zone of those 2,000 stars where life as we know it could be possible. All of them could be good targets to study for alien life and watch out for them watching us. So if you feel you are being watched as you go about your walk in the park tomorrow morning, that could be the aliens. That could be the aliens. I just look into, And so we, even if we could have telescopes that powerful, we still kind of couldn't look back at them. It's just whatever angle it's 
it's set up. That's uh... you, you, you need the right angle where the planet passes in front of the star because that's the way that you detect them by the light dipping a little bit. My hope for space travel in the future is that we'll be able to send a faster-than-light probe out into the universe to receive television signals for the 1960, and I finally get to watch all the missing episodes of Doctor Who that the BBC wiped. That's my great hope for space travel. You got a you got a DVD recently, didn't you? Of one of these. I got I got I got Evil of the Daleks, animated reconstruction. But if I could send a space probe out quicker than the TV signal, I could get I could get the TV signal, and then I could watch all the missing Doctor Who's. And then just go on Twitter and give spoilers. Yeah, yeah. Well, everyone knows the spoilers, but everyone would wonder how I'd got them. And say, yeah, I've got yeah. my space probe out there at the edge of the universe. I, I know it doesn't make any sense, but I would love to think that they were wiped to make room for Love Island. Yeah, no. <laughs> Welcome to the part of the show we invite writers to. We really love them and we know you love them too. Uh, now it's time to talk to our guest for episode four, and this is the international and also worldwide best-selling uh, author, Cressida Cowell, MBE. And here's Cressida reading for us from her new book series, Wizards of Once. So our hero, Wish, is out in the badwoods looking for her pet who has run away. And she has this... Um, she has this assistant bodyguard with her who's a little bit nervous because there they are. Uh, <clears throat> there they are. They're out at night. They shouldn't be out there. Um, and Wish, who's the hero, is worrying. He must be terrified. This is her, uh, her, worry, her runaway pet, worried Wish. We couldn't possibly leave him running away all on his own in the terrors of the Badwoods, all alone and scared, and he might be being chased by raving fangmouths or something. Aha, she said, with triumphant relief. There he is. She hauled on the pony's reins to bring him to a halt, and she picked up something that was scurrying through the undergrowth. Thank goodness, she stroked whatever it was gently and made soothing noises as if to say, don't worry, it's fine, you're safe now, you're with me. The sort of noises that might calm a petrified dog or cat or rabbit that had been running scared and all alone through the badwoods after the setting of the autumn sun. The pet was not a dog, nor a cat, nor even a rabbit. That pet of yours is a spoon. <laughs> that was fantastic. Thank you. Joining us now is Cressida Cowell, the multi, multi million selling author of How to Train Your Dragon series and a new Wizards of Want series. Um, joining us here on Double Booked. Welcome, Hello. Cressida. Um, you're famous for, for many things. And the eighth most famous thing you're famous for is being the laureate. Uh, for the UK, and you can work out what the other seven things are yourself. Now, I don't want to name drop or title drop, but I used to be laureate, uh, and I had a great time. And I wanted to ask you, because I know the duties are very different, and um, what would an average kind of working laureate day look like for you? If you're out on the road as a laureate, what would you be expected um, to do? Oh, I see. That's interesting, because I think over here in the UK, you sort of slightly set your own agenda. You can do as much as you can or as what what, what how, however much you want to really um so i've done uh, well obviously it hasn't been a very average you no. know what oh and what one thing another it hasn't been a very average year no. or two two so i'd say so i've done a lot of of being in my writing shed um 
and I set up a YouTube channel and I've been doing lots of, um, I've been doing, I set myself the task because I, I felt rather sorry for all these people who were homeschooling. Yeah. <laughs> and so I thought, yeah, I'd read my whole of my How to Train Your Dragon series aloud um, because reading aloud is a fantastic way to get your kid reading. Um, but I'd have it free on YouTube. So I've done, I've done that a lot. And um, I said, I, I did quite a few, we did some free festivals as well. We did the Reading is Magic Festival, um, which was was really lovely to be able to do a, a festival that, that was free. Um, but that was all digital. Um, so it hasn't been very typical. No. Did you say. get an extension? Oh, I, I, um, I know the Irish Laureate has been extended. I, and so, so I don't yeah, know if that's happening. You, I got a year. Because we, we, we had this whole library campaign doing. That's the other thing I've been um, doing is is a library campaign, a school library campaign, um, which is two parts. Basically, the one is a big political ask, which is £100 million a year to be ring fence for school libraries, um, which may sound no. a lot, but it's only a third of the sports premium. Yeah. And quite apart from the... The happiness <laughs> argument. <laughs> There's an economic argument, which is, you know, that the employers need literate employees, and they're not necessarily going to employ them on their netballing skills. Yeah. Owen, you said that as if I had net netballing skills. <laughs> like the implication. Uh, you never oh, yeah, know. Good. Well, we have a similar campaign over here, right to read, where yeah. up to 2008, it was idyllic and bucolic in Ireland when I was a young teacher. And we had that fund every year for yeah. school libraries. And it was just whipped away from yeah. us. Uh, and I I oh, think it, I think it was given to, you know, land so developers terrible. or something. So we're just trying to get that back. Yeah. So it's it's so vital. Oh, and it's, it's, it's terrible. It's terrible because it's just... You know, if if we all know because it's the area that we work in all the time, we all know what a, an advantage being a reader for the joy of it is. But how on earth can that happen? Yeah. How can you become if if you're a reader for the joy of it, you're more likely to be healthier, wealthier, less likely to be in prison, more likely to vote, more likely to own your own yeah. home. But how can that happen if your parents can't afford books and there isn't a library in your primary school. And those things are not necessarily mutually exclusive because I, when I was a kid, I came from a house that had loads of books in it, thanks to my mum, who was a big reader. But I loved going to the library because there you could get any yeah. book yeah. that you wanted. It yes. didn't rely on parental choice yeah. or even age group. It, you could have a look yeah. around all the non-fiction, the huge volumes that you would never ask your parents to buy because they might be 30 quid a volume. But in the library, you've got it. So there, there is a complete yeah. access argument. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. even for kids with books at home, um, you should have yeah. that. Now, I just want to run through your laureate's charter because I remember vividly when you unveiled it at the Globe, which was a fantastic event, mm -hmm. and the 10 things that you asked for, and, and then you can maybe explain your thinking behind behind some of them, any ones you like. So these were the 10 things that Chris came to with a, with a, with a charter. Uh, read for the joy of it. Uh, right, sorry, every child should have the right to. Read for the joy of it. Access new books in schools, libraries, and bookshops. Have advice from a trained librarian or bookseller, own their own book, see themselves reflected in a book, be read aloud to, have some choice in what they read, be creative for at least 15 minutes a week, which sounds such a tiny amount, see an author event at least once, and lastly, and perhaps most importantly, have a planet to read on. So how did yeah. you come up with those and how did you formulate those as you as you eased yourself into the role? 
um, it was like it was supposed to be like a gigantic to do list in a way. It was all the things that need to be in place for a kid to be a, to be a reader. It takes a village to read to raise a, a reader was my idea. It, just if you do one thing, it's not necessarily going to work. It, it, there's no magic bullet. Everything has to happen um, all together. Um, so. For instance, with my libraries, the library campaign, we're setting up six gold standard libraries. And it's not just a question of the books. You know, it is a question of the, the books in the set. So you want new books that look exciting. That's accessing new books in schools, libraries and bookshops. But also point number three, having the expert advice, having a trained person who really knows what they're doing about getting the right book into the hands of the right child at the right time. It's all the things that have to happen. I, I know this from raising my own children. All of the, these things, all of these areas I'm active in all of the time, um, reading aloud to them, because a kid is often much smarter than their reading ability is able to access. That can really easily turn a kid away from yeah. books. If a kid is really smart, and often kids really are smart, but they're dyslexic or they have a reading, you know, difficulty in some way they can so easily come to think books are something that not only don't they enjoy but actively can make them feel yeah. stupid even though they're not stupid at all so reading aloud can cut across that you know it can it, it, it can mean that they can they can listen to stories that are up to their intelligence and not their reading ability so yeah, that's just a few of the points. A book to see themselves reflect, reflected in the book. If you never see a kid like you in a book, how easy is it to think that books are for somebody else? They're not, you know, they're not for me or written by somebody. If you don't don't see a book that's written by somebody like you, that means I could never be a writer, you think to yourself. That's why I stopped watching so, Top of the Pops because there was no goateed gray-haired man. I just said, it's not for me anymore. I'm out. And that's why I'm out. Whereas, whereas today, if it was still running, it would be full of them. So it was, <laughs> yeah. the reverse message, really. So, all the, you know, all the presenters yeah. would be. Uh, can I ask you, because uh, pandemic kind of put a stop to all our plans, do you do you miss touring, Cressida? Did you, did you enjoy touring when it was happening? Oh, I love touring, Owen. I I absolutely love touring. And in fact, I, I went and did my first event at Bath Children's Festival on, on Friday. Wow. And oh, it was so great. I I love it. I mean, not <laughs> you can be a perfectly good children's writer and not necessarily love children. <laughs> that does happen. But um but I happen to really love children. And so, yeah. And an extension of that question would be, um, have you ever had that really amazing experience with a reader, you know, in one of your events where something happened, and this has happened to me and Andrew, we've talked about it, that just more or less changed your whole outlook on readers and on kids. I know that's not putting you on the spot a little bit, but can you remember anything Little, some little kids oh, sent they're, you. They're always surprising you. They're always, I, I, I particularly love the, the little ones who are total anarchists. There was one actually in Ireland. Uh, There's a little kid when I was touring in Ireland where the little kid was so teeny. He must have been about five or six. And he was absolutely on the edge of his seat. You know, he was, and, and I'd put something in. I often I never dumbed down, Owen. I put in these really Why did you say Owen again there like that? No, first no, first no, netball no, no, no. and now dumb. You don't either. Oh, you, don't, 
You don't either. You don't either, Owen. You assume intelligence on the part of your reader, but not necessarily, you know, I I assume that I can't bore them, but I I must always speak to their intelligence. And and so I put in this thing that I thought, oh, they're never going to get this. This little little six-year-old asked a question and he said, it was just, he said, why um, is the dragon furious trying to get um, rid of Hiccup, even though Hiccup loves dragons? And and I said, well, it's because the dragon furious can look into the future and he sees that Hiccup is going to be the reason that um, dragons become extinct. And the little kid was so excited. He ran up into the stage with his mum saying, no, you know, the mother said, no. And he just ran up onto the stage. He grabbed the microphone out of my hands and he said, it's, the reason is, it's not because the Dragon Furious doesn't love Hiccup. It's just because he knows, he knows that Hiccup is going to be the reason the Dragon. Anyway, he said this with his mother going, oh no, oh no, and dying of embarrassment. And then he handed it back to me and then he went back down. And well, I have a little surprise for you, Chris, because that thought... boy is actually our producer, Seamus. You can see there. <laughs> He's all grown up. <laughs> and I, I love yeah. that because it was just the kid was just so engaged and he was so passionate about the story and he minded so much. Yeah. And 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 that he wanted. To, I loved the fact that he didn't know the rules. He didn't know he wasn't supposed to share in that way. Cressa, can you talk to us a little bit about your writing, uh, your writing process? One one thing I love to see on your Instagram feed is there's there's always gorgeous looking picturesque shots of of the route to the writing shed at the end at the end of the garden. Yeah. But what goes on there? And and um, when you're starting a new book, how do you plan? And how do you lay out the story do you plan how, how do you start the new book what do you do the writing shed is really important because that that's a mental space that is away from the house I don't know how anybody else does it without that and 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 it's sort of buried in green and so you kind of sort of can't really see out and it turns you in on yourself and there's not so the internet is terrible which is why I'm not there now and so it's a very turning in on yourself place, and it's covered in photographs and maps, and um, and and so that's why I go there. And then I do masses and masses of sketchbooks and drawings and and sort of um, and really scrawly. I wish I had them here, but you can't, and nobody can see them anyway. Um, scrawly kind of pictures of of um, whatever I might be thinking about. <laughs> and and it just goes from there. And um, and I, I start writing and then I will, oh gosh, I wish I had it. I should have brought one of the sketchbooks. We'll, we'll pretend. You just make the listeners yeah. jealous. You just make yeah. the listeners jealous. That's, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. That's amazing. Whoa. It's a big mess. That's beautiful. It's a mess. <laughs> it's a mess. I draw the characters and I draw the maps of the world and 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 I'm just and I scroll down mad ideas and I think, okay. So I start thinking, oh, it's about a Vikings. And so then then I start thinking about a little kid who's trying to look up to their father. And then I think wouldn't it be interesting if it was um, about a different kind of a masculinity, you know, uh, and how our idea of what being a boy or a man, how that's changed. This is me thinking. And so 
that's and then I'm off and started thinking about you know and Vikings thought that dragons really existed and so I then start thinking well what if they really did and what would they look like and how would they be and of course they wouldn't be like these ordinary storybook dragons they'd be all different species like dogs and so there'd be you know there'd be red setter dragons and there'd be and then and then I start looking up all sorts of different species of weird animals and I discover you know transparent fish and I think excellent therefore I can have a transparent dragon that is enormous and you can see through it and you can see its victims being digested as they go through the alimentary canal that's that's it is incredible that a lot of your process then is questioning yourself so you you get a premise and then you just tap away at it questioning 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 but some of your inspiration must be kind of real and i think yeah for example the barbaric archipelago for example that's probably very much based uh i i would have guessed and some of the Scottish islands. I mean, I don't know how true that is. Is that am I right there? Yeah. God, it's Thank completely God. true. Thank God. That's like, where... <laughs> I thought, oh my God, I've completely <laughs> misread that. I've completely misread that. I've got I've got the evidence. Oh. I really do have the evidence. It that is the Isle of that's yeah, the Isle of yeah. Burke where we would be dropped off as um we'd be dropped off by a local boatman and picked up again two weeks later. That's where you learn to live like a Viking. Yeah. And well, that was where the Vikings first came to. They came, they came across to Ireland, of course. I yeah. mean, um, uh, and then they, in Scotland, they came across that West coast and they came as pirates and they stayed to settle. So real Vikings lived on that Island. And of course my dad, because we had no television, would tell the stories that were descended from Viking times um, so, and a lot of the stories were about dragons because Vikings believed that dragons really existed. Perfect. So, yeah. absolutely, this is all from uh, one of the stories that was about a dragon on the nearby island of Mull. I, I make the island called Burke, but actually, all of the islands around there are called Muck, Egg, Rum. Burke would fit right in. And uh, and one of the stories on Mull was about a dragon that has, had turned into a mountainside. And in stormy nights, it's very, very dark and a little island in the middle of nowhere. And I used to imagine, what if the sound of the storm was the sound of the dragon wow. shaking off its rocky incarnation and waking up? Yeah. I'm writing all this down. This has right. definitely gone into my next trilogy. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so thank you very much. Yeah. Um, that, that, yeah. That was yeah. No problem. Owen, I, listen, I think that's all we have time one. for because I've, I've actually have several dragon. I have two dragon books, at least. I don't know. I, I love it. It's a great, it's a, they're great animals because they can be, as you've shown us, whatever, uh, whatever you, want. The, you want them to be. They can be what you want. Absolutely. Yeah. Listen, I have to go yeah. back to netball practice. So um, you do. I do. And the other thing I was doing, I forget what that was, but uh but thank you so much. It's so, so great Rester, to see you. Thank you for joining us. It's lovely to see you. Absolutely. Yeah. I think the campaign is brilliant for yeah, all, the, the Laureate Charter, well the done. library staff. It's, all of that is so important. And you've done a brilliant job of highlighting that and a brilliant job of your to-do list of, of saying yeah, to people, yeah. maybe this is what we should but be aiming for. I think, yeah. I think lots of people don't realise, actually. I think I'm, I'm constantly, I say things like one and eight schools don't have a have a library yeah. and you know children on free school meals are twice as likely to be in a school without a library and people are like really yeah um, so realize. part of it is about awareness about getting the word out there well um, you're certainly uh, helping to do that and and this podcast will get the awareness to maybe two dozen more people so 
so that's good. But, but if, dozen, if my mum listens, two dozen, two dozen clever. There you go. Clever people. Yes. Owen, who two dozen. Are, who are yeah. Very, yeah. That little kid in Ireland is definitely going to hear this because he's probably still a book lover. <laughs> And he's gonna he's, he's gonna send if that is you actually young child that kid please that email kid in be, email yeah. in and we'll we, you know we'll have a word with him because that would be that hilarious. kid could be ruling the world yeah? he's probably yeah he's probably he's, well I was gonna say president but he's in his eighties so it's probably not him but it could be a junior minister or something he's a junior minister who just cut the library's budget that's how that's, <laughs> that's how that's went he's never forgotten he's just cut he twenty million Andrew, he grew up oh no uh, that's the problem yeah. With this. Little people, they grow up. Yeah, that's because you broke his heart by making that dragon <laughs> try to kill Hiccup. That's, that's all your fault. That we have no books in Ireland. We're we're right. back to cutting up potatoes and reading them. So <laughs> not the same. <laughs> oh. Chris, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Chris. Absolute pleasure. See you soon. Thank you. See you soon. Great to see you. That was fantastic. What a what a pleasure to speak to Krista and her brilliant hear about a brilliant libraries campaign um libraries are absolutely brilliant our next subject may or may not be brilliant um it's it was rubbish but i loved it and owen has chosen the 1980 film flash gordon so tell us why is it rubbish and why do you still love it it was rubbish but i loved it First of all, I, I would like to tell the younger viewers who probably think that Flash is, you know, associated with that wipe, uh, that song Flash oh, is actually about those Flash wipes. It is not about the Flash wipes. It's about the brilliant 1980s bizarre expressionist superhero panto that was um, Flash Gordon. And like many things, I was initially drawn to it by the music of Queen because I was a huge and remain a huge Queen fan. Uh, and they, as the, as their 1980 album released the soundtrack of Flash Gordon, and I was, at that time, I suppose I was quite po-faced in my adoration of Queen, and didn't realise they had a bit of a sense of humour, uh, and I took it all very seriously. And I was also po-faced in my love of science fiction. So here comes, a, a, I suppose it is more like a light opera version of a, a science fiction opus which is backed by a very over-the-top space opera um, mu musical theme. And I wasn't really sure how, how it was going to work for me. So I went into the movie theater thinking I am not going to like this as a devout Queen fan and a very, as I said, serious minded young sci-fi fan. At 1980, I would have been like 15. Uh, now, the first thing to say is that there are pronounced negatives in that the special effects are not good. And people say, well, you know, this was of its time, but you have to remember that Star Wars came out the year before. And those special effects were groundbreaking, uh, to say the least. So special effects were kind of on the way up, but not in this. Like space in this was, you know, there would be a bucket of water and then someone would inject some pig paint into that and swirl it around with a stick and <laughs> to get an interesting pattern. And then that would be a nebula. So it was quite ropey. But so looking at that at the time, uh, you were of mixed mind because 
our producer won't remember this, Seamus won't remember this, but there was a time where you were kind of bad special effects were expected and you accepted them. That time is gone now. Uh, if it's anything less than amazing, we don't accept it. Uh, but there was a time when bad special effects were kind of the, the norm. But we were just getting out of that time with the advent of Star, with the arrival of Star Wars. But anyway, so strike one, not great special effects. However, uh, strike, uh, I suppose, a plus one would be the cast was fantastic. Uh, you had Brian Blessed there playing Hawkman. And really, if I stopped at that point, that should be enough. If you just absorbed that sentence. That, that's that's the role Brian that Brian Blessed. is best remembered for. And um, are line. you going to do the classic line? You're going to do the classic no, line? No, you do it. You've got, you've got a better... Uh... Gordon's alive! <laughs> Gordon's alive. I mean, that everybody knows that line. I, I'm sure a lot of people don't know what it's from. But they, um, but it's a fantastic line. And I, let me just paint a picture for our listeners. Brian Blessed uh, is a Hawkman, so he's wearing a leather shorts. It's, it's kind of a leather hosen, uh, and he's carrying a mace. Uh, he's wearing Roman sandals, and he has big fake wings on. And that's him for the entire show. Uh, and he's fantastic in it. And you have he's a Timothy little bit Dun- like a Nazi crossed with a house sparrow, isn't he? In his look. A Nazi cross. That was exactly uh, what never occurred to me. And now I shall never be able to forget it. <laughs> you can imagine him at one of those nut feeders, just, just <laughs> trying to get in and then he'd just club it. Please stop. Please stop. You're ruined. I was going to, I'm trying to say I love this. I'm try- you have Timothy Dalton pay- playing a kind of, uh, who's brilliant. I love Timothy Dalton. He would go on to be James Bond, of course. Um, and he, he's more, uh recently i think he was in hot fuzz and he was uh fantastic and he was brilliant in penny dreadful as well so he's a, he's a brilliant genre actor and in this he pays kind of a space age robin hood dressed in lincoln green and he has an amazing earl flynn mustache and he just bounds around this uh forest moon um with a golden sword again excellent excellent character design they really put all the money, I think, into costumes, uh, except for Flash Gordon. He just had a T-shirt that said Flash. <laughs> so you knew he was Flash Gordon. Uh, he was, I think, this was his first major role, Sam Jones. And while everybody else was knew what they were in, they were in a panto, and but they were playing it quite arch but straight. I, I, you just get the feeling that he didn't know that, and he was just giving it everything. Uh, and not, and this was probably his last major. Although he has been in several, I think, in dozens of movies. So you're saying you're saying Flash Gordon was his first and last major role. He was well. I, that's not fair. He had major roles in minor movies, maybe I should say, as or straight to video, as they used to be called. Uh, but he's done really well for himself over the years. He's become quite an accomplished character actor. But this, I must have been insane for him to fly over from the states to this. <laughs> movie that was populated mostly by Oscar nominees and Golden Globe winners like Topol and to be dropped into something so colorful. I mean, the colors are so rich in this. It is like the color controls were broken on the set of Top of the Pops in 1972. It's just, if the Bay Rollers are sweet or mud came out, you would not be uh, too surprised. The plot is insane the characters are all over the place there's no motivation it, like if we handed in this book andrew 
to one of our publishers, you'd just be laughed out of the building. We would not have been, we would not be invited to any award ceremonies. But somehow, in spite of the red and the gold and all the campness, it completely works. And it's just great fun because the guy who made it, uh, Hodges, he knew what he was doing, uh, I think Mike Hodges, and he knew that he was directing this camp send up. So it's like the sci-fi equivalent of the Batman of the 1960s, I think, where they just, everybody's having a great laugh. And there was a lot of stuff well, it around. Is, it is, and I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad you said that because one of the one of the things, of course, it shares is that the screenplay for Flash Gordon is by Lorenzo Simple Jr., who wrote the 1960s Batman show. Oh, okay. So it's exactly his brand of camp party fun and yeah. he's been quoted in interviews just saying yeah yeah um we were just trying to have fun people think we were trying to make a serious science fiction movie but we yeah. were just trying to have fun like we did with batman exactly and i think it's a little bit carry on as well as like the old carry on movies again a lot of our readers might have seen those but uh it wouldn't be too surprised if they speeded up everybody like they used to do in penny hill and they ran around the set uh, laughing and screaming. And another thing that people don't talk about much is the uh, post, the artwork. We were kind of in a golden era of artwork um, for posters. And this guy, whose name was Richard Amsel, who was kind of like the king of uh, these posters. And I think he did Raiders of the Lost Ark. Um, he did, I think, some Star Wars. He's just, he just did everything, apparently. Uh, and he did, I and I have the poster, obviously, I, I don't know why I'm pointing, uh, but... Um, for your, for your uh, own amusement, I always for, Well, that's why I usually point. And uh, he he did the poster for that. And, and after seeing the movie, and the movie kind of broke the person I was because I came out of it angry at myself for enjoying it because I realized that, and now, of course, I know, like if the inside of Freddie Mercury's head was a movie, it would probably be Flash Gordon. Like for years after, he wore the leather shorts uh, that Brian Blessed had worn. I, not the exact ones, but the same, the same style of shorts and the white t-shirt with Flash written on it. Like that was his stage outfit um, for years after that. And the soundtrack is fantastic. I mean, I, I, I often play it when I'm working. It's a, it's a really wonderful, emotive uh, soundtrack to work to. So yeah, I am I am here today to tell you with the poster of Richard Amsell looking down at me, that I I love the Flash Gordon movie, and I think Queen were right artistically to make the soundtrack. Um, indeed. So I think we we will definitely admit Flash Gordon to our Hall of Fame. It was rubbish, but I loved it. Hall of Fame, and we should just say that there's a terrific book out uh, from Titan, which is called Flash Gordon: The Official Story of the Film, which is a massive kind of making of book uh by john walsh who writes lots of lovely film books and if you want to find out more about flash gordon that's got all the details about the uh cult favorite um and loads of details about the making of it and why it's become a cult it's a good book very good book and he's done quite a few good books he's he's an expert on Harry, ray harryhausen is ray harryhausen the uh i hope i'm saying you, that. you pronounce it ray harry harry harryhausen Oh, Ray Harry Harry Harry. England, yeah, we say Ray Harry Harry Harryhausen <laughs> in England. That's like the it. football chant version. Harry Harry Harryhausen. Harryhausen. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, so the stop motion guy who's uh, famous for doing all those uh, Jason the Arcanauts movies. Absolutely. Yeah. Also fantastic, by the way. I don't want to say rubbish because they weren't at all. They were, they were just great. Yeah, I don't say rubbish because you get in trouble there. I'll get in trouble. 
Thank you for your question. Agony Own will be with you shortly. And okay, now we've got this edition's Agony Owen, in which um, lovely readers and listeners of the podcast write into us. You can write in at doublebookedpodcast at aol.com, doublebookedpodcast at aol.com, uh, and send us your questions uh, for Owen and myself. Our first question tonight is from Isabella. Isabella says, uh, Isabella is in Seattle, Washington, and she says, I'm a recent graduate with a BA in art history and English. I came up with an amazing idea for a book when working on my creating creative writing thesis. I turned it into a short story. However, I'm struggling to find time to write this story. Uh, even when I do get the time, I'm too tired to sit down and write. When you first began writing, uh, and did you have a job, and how did you find time in your busy schedule to actually write? And later in your career, how do you make sure you always have time to write? So, where, how do you, how do you do that? How do you make sure you've got enough time to write the best-selling genius novels that you do? Well, when I started out, I see though I didn't even, I didn't even contradict you about me writing best-selling genius novels. <laughs> Just, I just accept. I just accepted it. First of all, I think I'm the worst person to ask for concise answers because I do tend to ramble, and then our poor producer has to like cut out the first twenty minutes. So I will try and get on with it. Um, it's hard to find. It's tough to find time. It's always tough to find time. And when I was started writing, I was of course a teacher, so I had a full time job, um, and I had I bought a little. Uh, piece of garnet garden furniture a little plastic table and i would just put that in the corner of our apartment with a little plastic chair and work longhand on on notebooks and uh, because i had i had this urge to strive to get it done and someone said to me don't think about it as writing a book think about it as i have to write a page today and that's a much easier thing to digest so you're not thinking i've got it i'm never gonna do this is too big a challenge uh just think i have to write a page um today and i did that every day uh, for many years just um and i think philip pullman said it once he does two sides of a page and then he's that's enough for the day i i only do one side so i do a thousand words or less so um and it's surprising how quickly that will that will mount up and a friend of mine, a friend of ours, I should say, Oliver Jeffers, he was asked a question like this and he gave quite a morbid answer. And someone asked him, how do you make sure that you have the time to write? How do you motivate yourself? And he just said, remember that you are dying, <laughs> which I thought was, uh, and, and it was stunned silence. It was in an Edinburgh event we were doing. But then people realized he's right. You're not going to be here all the time. You need to get this stuff done. You'd never know. Uh, when is it going to be that last page you're going to write? And uh, and as you get older, that that becomes more obvious. I, I don't know if you guys have noticed, but I have a couple of grey hairs, and uh, you know every grey hair is you know a day closer to the grave. It's so, that fantastic Fight Club quote, isn't it? Uh, this is your life, yeah. and it's ending one minute at a time. Yeah, so which is fantastic. I re I remember always being really impressed with your work ethic. I remember many years ago when we were on a tour for one of the artists' graphic novels coming down into a hotel lobby where we were going to have a car pick us up to take us to a comic convention or something. And you were sitting there uh, and you had your little pack, suitcase packed because we were off that night somewhere else. And you were tapping away. And I, and I said, oh, I said, oh, just doing some work. And then and then you folded down your laptop and said to me, you ready to go? And I said, oh, I've forgotten my passport or I've forgotten something in the room. Hang on. And I went up and ran up, got the thing from my room, came down. And you knew I was only going to be on five minutes at most. And I was probably gone three. Um, but when I'd come down, you'd opened it up again and you were tapping away. Cause you, and, and I again, you obviously gave you some kind of look of like, 
well, was that worth it? And you said, you know, well, that's another three paragraphs done. That's another three yeah. paragraphs done of whatever, and you've got them in your head. And I always remember, I genuinely always remember that and always admired that, that, you know, you're just doing something incrementally. And when we do a graphic novel, it's another yeah. panel done, another page done, whatever. And, you know, if you can keep all the software in your head, which I think one learns to do as one does more books, you can, you can do that. You can just switch on yeah. and then write. I, I will admit I'm not as good at that anymore. In, I mean, I will do it, but I find it's more of it is bad. <laughs> so I'm not, a, I don't switch on as easy as I used to, but you still have to do it. I mean, what whatever your, if you want to get that book done, if you want to write the end, um, which is a wonderful thing to be able to write, you just need to put in the work, but don't think this book is 120,000 words long. I'm never going to be able to do it. All these big tasks, you have you have to come, you know, you have to parcel that. Whether it's be getting fit, writing a book, learning to play an instrument, it's not going to happen overnight. You just have to do one thing every day, and then the rest will take care of itself. So uh, our second question. Our second question is kind of related to that. Uh, it's from Daniel Krieger, who says, "As a prolific writer, how long do you take off?" between books well daniel that's an interesting question because i i don't i never intend to take off any time between books so i always organize it so i go very smoothly from one book to the next and i will have started the next book before i finish the book i'm working on and that's because i usually have two or three things going for example andrew and i are working currently um on a graphic novel but i'm also working with my good friend pj lynch uh, on a picture book and I have a couple other secret projects and I'm working on a novel uh, myself. So all of these things take up, like my novel, I would say, and my graphic novel with Andrew are my main projects. And then every now and then something will come back from the editors. So you have to do those. So I'm never not working on a book, but sometimes when I finish my main project, and I would say nearly every time, which would be my, my novel, I suppose, my brain just, says okay i know you thought you were jumping into the next book now but you're not so you're not going to have any longing to get going on this and it could often take me a month to six weeks just to shake off that lethargy now i'll still be working on my my other projects but i thought i was going to jump straight into something new but my brain wants a major palate cleanse and it's just kind of uh letting all the old detritus from the old book uh, seep away but but again, it's just me. I don't know, Andrew. Would you do you have any kind of uh, break in between projects? I, th I think it depends upon deadlines. I remember when I when I started writing many many years ago and started being published in books, I would finish something and go, "Oh, I finished a project. I deserve a week off. Oh, that would be marvelous." And then I remember there was a time when I because deadlines were pressing and I had something on the on the, ready to go that I, I about a year, a couple of years later, I finished something in the morning and sent it off to the editor just pre-lunch. And then, you know, had a sandwich. And then in the afternoon went, well, I might as well start the next thing. And then just started the next yeah. project because it was pressing. It was suddenly, yeah. well, you don't deserve a week off because this is already slightly late and you need to get going on it. And then I think from then on, it's just juggling stuff. Like you say, there's never yeah. a time when either of us is not doing something. If you finish one thing, then, then you know, it's, it's time to get on with the next. But also, it's worth making the point that, that we are professional writers. So it is like, most for most of the time, it's it's a job, and we have to do this, and we've got bills to pay, and uh, it's we don't just kind of finish a book and then push out the boat onto the river and smoke a cigar for a few weeks. It's 
it's on to the next thing. And that's that what we be, want. That would be one really big cigar, though, wouldn't it? We would have yeah. to have a really big boat and a really big cigar if we were going to smoke it for a couple of weeks. I think ideally the boat would be, the cigar would be made, would be a boat, and we would just hollow it out and smoke the boat. And I think that's that would, and then swim in. And so yeah, just swim back. We have to go, we have to go home now. Oh, that's actually, good last we, time. We, would, we would get a trilogy out of that cigar boat. Cigar boat, so easily. I think so. So uh, it's different strokes for different folks, uh, but I never have a time, and Andrew concurs. The jury from the UK concurs. There's no downtime, really. It's just next project. Because we, we're very lucky and we love what we do. So we'll we love on. what we do. Yeah, we've worked hard to, to do this. Sometimes when I get really tired and my brain is a bit fuzzed or fried, I say, this is what you wanted. This is what you love. You know, so... Be, be delighted that you have people who want you to do stuff and that Andrew Duncan actually uh, is willing to go into another book with you. So I am, I am grateful and delighted. Owen, as ever, it's been an enormous pleasure to be double booked with you. Thank you very much. That sounded a bit strange, but, 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 but thank you. <laughs> Double Booked was produced by Owen Colfer and Andrew Donkin and Seamus Redman. Sound editing by Seamus Redman. Theme tune by Liam Bates. This has been a Silver Foxes production. Owen and Andrew are not responsible for the accuracy of information contained and expressed within this podcast. Let's be honest, they're barely responsible for themselves. <laughs>